It comes from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, the lectionary offers us a passage that is arguably the most popular of the parables of Jesus. It's not just a popular parable even, but it is also one of the most recognizable stories in the entire Bible. Often called the parable of the Good Samaritan, though that title is nowhere in the text itself, we often find the story's popular title and pieces of its content throughout our world. For instance, in many places there is a legal protection that people who offer assistance to people that are injured or incapacitated, perhaps by a car accident or a mugging, we call that a Good Samaritan law. At Christmas time, many within the church are accustomed to packing shoeboxes for children in need through Operation Christmas Child. Operation Christmas Child is a project of a ministry called Samaritan's Purse. This past year, there was a television show that was a medical drama about a heart surgeon named Dr. Samantha Griffith, and the show was titled Good Sam. On Zelda Road here in Montgomery, you might drive by or go to a ministry born out of this church called the Samaritan Counseling Center. In President George W. Bush's first inaugural address, he said, I can pledge our nation to a goal. When we see that wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, 
we will not pass to the other side. Likewise, in a 2012 speech, President Barack Obama said, and like that good Samaritan on the road to Jericho, we can't just pass by indifferent. We've got to be moved by compassion. We've got to bind up the wounds. And in a 1982 speech at the National Prayer Breakfast, President Ronald Reagan said, if we remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, he crossed the road, knelt down, and bound up the wounds of the beaten traveler, the pilgrim, and then carried him into the nearest town. The only parable that would have any argument at having as much notoriety and recognizability as this parable would be the parable of the prodigal son, but I don't think that it even has much of one. It is phenomenal that this story is so well known, both within the church, but also in the broader world. I mean, isn't that what we hope for? That the good news of the gospel message will flow into our very being, and that the outflow will transform the way the world sees things. There is this hope that everyone will come to know the stories that we tell. There is, however, something of a danger that comes with such a powerful story becoming so recognizable and common. The parable and the story that surrounds it can lose some of its fascination. It can lose some of its edginess. Its radicality and offense can fade away. The story's meaning can become quite simplistic. And when we use a title for it, like the parable of the good Samaritan, we simplify the story to being good guys and bad guys as if it is some superhero movie. One of the beauties of Jesus' parables is that they are not simplistic. They have complexities. They leave us with things to chew on each and every time we read or hear them. When the lawyer asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus does not simply say, well, everyone is your neighbor, even your enemy. Jesus did not offer the lawyer some checklist. Your neighbors are the people that ask you for money the people that live on your street, that do that thing that really bothers you? Yes, and even Samaritans. No, Jesus responds to the lawyer's question with a parable, a parable that has nuance, a parable that has layers. When I was in seminary at Emory, I served appointments in the local church. The first two years in East Alabama, and the third year was actually my first year here. Students doing such could earn coursework for their church work by participating in a group called Teaching Parish. This group would meet once a month or so and talk through assignments connected to ministry in the local church. My first two years, we had this wonderful cohort of about five people serving churches in Alabama. About half of us were in, or half were in the North Alabama Conference, and about half were in our conference. We were led by a former associate minister of this church, actually one of Bishop Bryan's former associates, one of my favorite people, the Reverend Dr. Nathan Atwood, 
who was serving and still is serving at the First United Methodist Church of Mariana, Florida. Typically, Nathan would meet with us at a central location, usually here, actually. But one meeting, going above and beyond as Nathan does, he borrowed a beach condo from one of his church members and arranged for us to have a short overnight retreat where we could knock out a lot of our assignments. So, after all five of us student pastors were done with our morning worship services on Sunday, we met up, piled in one car, and headed together toward the beach. We would be there a little over 24 hours. It was a Sunday afternoon and Monday morning meeting before returning home so that we could all be in Atlanta for class on Tuesday. So the five of us preachers in training needed to get there fast so that we could get our work done. Our work was very important. My friend Kyle Bryan, who is now an associate minister at First United Methodist Church of Anniston, was driving our car. Somewhere a little ways into this journey, we come up on a car on the side of the road. And of course, we want to stop and help. But we're in a bit of a hurry. We have important assignments to do. And just as we pass the car, Kyle says, and the priests and Levites pass by on the other side of the road. Talk about something of a parable coming to life. A car of not one aspiring ministers, but five aspiring ministers. And not just headed anywhere, but traveling together to a meeting where they're supposed to be learning how to become better pastors. Talk about convicting. Talk about feeling a connection with the priest and the Levite. When we simplify this story to good Samaritan and bad priests and Levites, we miss so much of what brings depth and power to this parable. We miss that we can learn from each character. A simplistic and generalizing reading has us believe that this priest is a bad priest, and this Levite is a bad Levite. I don't think that this is necessarily a fair depiction of them. First of all, in the words of Brian Stevenson, each of us is more than the worst thing that we have ever done. Second, it ignores the reality of the component of the story that we're probably all guilty of. Excuse making. A case of the, yeah, I want to help, but... Jesus doesn't give us the priests or the Levites' reason or excuse for not stopping, so we are left to our own imaginations. Yeah, I want to help, but the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is notoriously dangerous. What if the body is a trap set by robbers? Or, yeah, I want to help, but I'm already running behind and my people in Jerusalem are already expecting me. Or, yeah, I would help, but this looks like his own fault. 
Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. makes a good guess when he preached. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Regardless of the excuse, good or bad, fair or foul, they should have stopped, but they didn't. I believe that we can all relate to the priests and Levite at times, knowing that we are in a situation where we should help, but we find that we, too, find excuses that help justify us not stopping. It is perfectly likely that the priest and the Levite were not bad priests or Levites, but that they were good people that allowed their excuses to give them reason not to stop and help, even though they should have. But this story is about far more than the importance of stopping and helping, though that is very important. The story hinges not only on the fact that someone did stop and help, but on who stopped and helped. We have our third traveler approaching, and as stories often do, it develops the storytelling format where the first two examples get it wrong, but the third gets it right. Think the three little pigs. The first pig builds its house out of straw, but the big bad wolf huffs and puffs and blows that house down. The second pig builds its house out of sticks, and the big bad wolf huffs and puffs and blows the house down. But the third pig builds its house out of brick, and the big bad wolf huffs and puffs but can't blow it down. In this story format, we have this expectation that the third one is going to be the good one that gets it right. There is this instinctive expectation that the third one is going to get the job done. Within Jesus' context, there is yet another expectation of who the third traveler would be. Completing the triad, priests and Levites are most often grouped with Israelites. For example, Ezra chapter 10 verse 5 says, Then Ezra stood up and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear that they would do as had been said. When the third traveler that stops to help is not an Israelite, there is a shock to what the expectation would be. But it goes even further, even to a level of being offensive when it is a Samaritan, the mortal enemy of the Jewish people. This is a feud that has been going on and bubbling for about a thousand years. Its roots go back to the splitting of the 12 tribes of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. The Jewish people even said that the Samaritans did not worship the same God that they worshiped. The Jewish people saw the Samaritans as being tainted by the Assyrian Empire, and the Samaritans didn't think anything of the Jewish people either. This feud and disdain was deep. 
When Jesus meets the, with the Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4, 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. In Luke chapter 9, the literal chapter before this one, there is a brief little-known story that reads, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked the disciples. Then they went to another village. Shortly before he tells the parable we have today, Jesus himself is caught in this deep disdain between Jews and Samaritans. If anyone has reason to air grievances regarding the Samaritans, it is Jesus in this instance. But Jesus rebukes the disciples for speaking aggression towards the Samaritans, and shortly after tells a story with a Samaritan hero. Jesus, kicked out of a Samaritan village, uses a Samaritan as a model neighbor in an example that we are to show love, mercy, and kindness to all people, even our perceived enemies. A sobering challenge if there ever was one. So, how might this parable, such a familiar parable, transform how we live our lives? Vanderbilt professor A.J. Levine, in her book titled The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, says, to hear this parable in contemporary terms, we should think of ourselves as the person in the ditch, and then ask, is there anyone from any group about whom we'd rather die than acknowledge she offered help? or he showed compassion? More, is there any group whose members might rather die than help us? If so, then we know how to find the modern equivalent for the Samaritan. The scandal of the lawyer's original question, who is my neighbor, is its under underlying and perhaps real question who is not my neighbor, to which Jesus gives no exception. And so we have no exception either. The story leaves us with a question to ponder. Who are the Samaritans for us? And how will we find ways to love them, care for them, help them heal, and be their neighbor, even if they won't be won back. To the glory of God. Amen.